Reverend Dr. Joe Leyenbauer will be talking to us about our theme for the 2019 LCMS Youth Gathering. Please welcome him in the warm. Hey. Hey, everybody. Okay. okay, honesty is a big theme in the Psalms. Be honest with me. How many of you feel like you're about ready for a nap at this point? <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> me too. You know, I don't know. You th probably know this is supposed to be an intensive uh, session, whatever that means. I wonder how much trouble we would get into if we just took like a really intense 90-minute nap right now. <laughs> Um, I guarantee you, I'd probably get more trouble than you would for that. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk. If you if you if I notice you kind of snuggling up to your neighbor and just taking a little nap, that's fine. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of psalms actually that talk about resting right in the Lord. So we could probably find a way to justify it even on the basis of the psalms. But what I'd like you to do right now is first of all. You're going to need your gathering Bible for what we're doing here today. And what I'd like you to do right off the bat is open your Bible to page 1047. That's not a book of the Bible. There is no book 1047, as you probably know. But if you didn't realize it, in the back of the Bible are various brief orders for daily prayer. And as I'm sure you know, the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. They are the prayer book of the Bible. They are our primary biblical foundation for individual and corporate worship and prayer and devotion. And so it seemed especially appropriate to me in this session, as we dive a little deeper into the Psalms, to begin with prayer and worship. And if you notice as you look at this service on, on this one page and even the services before and after it and you look at the right hand column there, most of the versicles in these services are taken from where? From, from the Psalms. And so we're going to use this service for noon to begin our time together and we begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Evening, morning, and noon. Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. For many years now, I've been using various personal reading guides for reading through the Bible that have included at least one psalm a day. And the psalm that was appointed in my own schedule for this day was Psalm 12. So that's the psalm I started my day with. And so I've decided I'm just going to force it on you. And we're going to use Psalm 12 as our psalm and our reading. And that, I would actually like you to flip open to that. It's on page 452, Psalm 12. And I'd like us to read it responsively, whole verse by whole verse. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked crowd, and the violence is exalted among the children of man. 
Well, that's a cheery psalm to start our session, right? To start our day. That's what I thought when I read it this morning. However, it's amazing, isn't it, how the psalms thousands of years old really are so relevant in many ways. Don't we need to be guarded and saved from this generation in so many ways by the Lord? And we could go on and on. We could spend, you know, this whole session unpacking this psalm or any one psalm. But what I always try to do, just if you want a little tip from my own devotional life, what I always try to do when I read the psalm of the day in the morning is to, is to pick out one verse, sometimes even one phrase or one word, and really concentrate on it and carry it with me through the day. And this morning, as I was doing my devotion in this psalm, the verse that really clung to my heart and that I tried to cling to is in verse 6. Let's read that verse again together. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Great verse, huh? The words of the Lord are pure words. We hear so many words out there in the world today. A lot of words that we can't trust, a lot of words that deceive us and lead us astray, a lot of words that are mixed up with a lot of different true and false things, but the words of the Lord are pure words. And every moment that we spend reflecting on them is a moment that God can bless us and speak to us and use us. Psalm 12, let's go back to our service on page 1047 and continue with the versicles uh, of the Kyrie. O Lord, O Christ, O Lord, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I try to go back and forth in my devotional life and using little prayer books that speak prayers oftentimes better than I can speak out of my own heart. And the one that I'm using now is called A Diary of Private Prayer by John Bailey. Bailey's not a Lutheran, but he's a, he's a great theologian. And this is kind of a classic. It's been around for about 75 years. Um, but I'm going to use a portion of the prayer for the 12th day of the month that, again, I used this morning and that is in this prayer book. And I thought as I read it this morning, as I prayed it, that it resonated in a lot of ways with the theme of the gathering and what we'll be talking about here. So listen for those resonances as, as you pray with me. Let's pray. O eternal God, though thou art not such as I can see with my eyes or touch with my hands, yet grant me this day a clear conviction of thy reality and power. Let me not go forth to my work believing only in the world of sense and time, but give me grace to understand that the world I cannot see or touch is the most real world of all. Let me keep steadily in mind that the things that really matter are not money or possessions, not houses or lands, not bodily comfort or bodily pressure, but truth and honor and meekness and helpfulness and a pure love for you. I, a pilgrim of eternity, stand before thee, O Eternal One. Let me not seek to deaden or destroy the desire for thee that disturbs my heart. Let me rather yield myself to its constant constraint and go where it leads me. Make me wise to see all things today under the form and reality of eternity. And make me brave to face all the changes in my life which such a vision may entail. Through the grace of Christ my Savior. Amen. And we use the concluding prayer. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. 
Grant that all people of the earth may look to you and see their salvation. For your mercy's sake, we pray. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to start with just a little bit more of a personal background and introduction, not because I love talking about myself, although I do, um, but because I think it'll help you understand a little bit more if you don't know me, you've never heard me speak, uh, a little bit more what I'm about and where I come from and the reason that I've decided to kind of handle the session today in this way. First of all, I'm a, I'm a third generation Lutheran pastor. My father was a pastor, still alive, 90 years old. My grandfather was a Lutheran pastor. My great-grandfather actually went to the seminary in St. Louis to become a pastor and was a buggy driver for CFW Walther, believe it or not, and then got ill and had to go back home to the farm, but inspired in his sons and grandchildren a desire to be a pastor. And the Lambar family has spawned quite a few pastors and church workers out in the church. You may even know a Leyenbauer or Rempfer, which is another part of the family who is a pastor or teacher or DC or church worker. And most of those people I don't have any trouble acknowledging as relatives. Uh, I don't know what they would say about me. Uh, I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in what some might consider one of the LCMS holy cities. Why? because we have a great seminary there in Fort Wayne, so that's where I was born. And then when I was in fourth grade, my father took a call to St. Louis, Missouri, to old historic Trinity downtown, see so of Walter's first congregation, uh, another LCMS holy city, of course. And then we eventually moved to the Chicago area, where I did most of my growing up. And that is also, whether you really, it's maybe not so obvious a connection, but Chicago is the city where the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in 1847 was founded, actually. So it must be destiny or something, I guess, you know, that uh, I ended up becoming a pastor and in church work. By the way, how many people from Indiana, Missouri, Illinois? I mentioned some of those. Yeah, okay, awesome. Well, you're good people. That's all there is to it. You know, you're, God loves you, right? Um, <laughs> And he loves everybody. Uh, even though I'm saying in retrospect that maybe, you know, I don't believe in destiny in some vague sense, but that it was God's plan that I become a pastor, that was definitely not what I set out to do when I left home for college. My, my plan was to become a lawyer. And I started my college education at Valparaiso University in Indiana, which also has a great law school. And that was my intention, but God had other plans, a long story. Um, after two years, he kind of redirected my path, and I ended up at Concordia Ann Arbor in the pre-SEM program, and then finally at the St. Louis Seminary. And I mention that partly in a gathering like this, just to warn you against thinking you know exactly what you're going to do with your life. Um, God sometimes has nothing wrong with thinking, well, that's what I want to do, and God will let you know, yeah, believe me. You know, if he has other plans. But this is a kind of a perfect place, I think, to do some thinking about that and to do some praying about that and at least to ask yourselves, is it possible that God might have something in mind for me that's a little different than I thought? Or even, uh, you know, as I said, a lot of pastors in my family, and it wasn't that I didn't respect my dad or my grandfather or anything like that. Maybe it was the opposite. I had so much respect for what they did that I thought, I could never do that. I, I couldn't mount the pulpit and preach a sermon, you know. Well, maybe some people say, I still can't. I don't know. But I, you know, I, I've been doing it for a lot of years and trusting that God will bless it. So maybe something similar possibly in your thoughts and, and heart. My first call as a pastor was to Hillsdale, Michigan, uh, the home of Hillsdale College, some of you may know. Any Michiganders? Here? Yeah, awesome. Um, that's where I met my wife, Hope, too, at Concordia Ann Arbor, and we have four children and five grandchildren. Um, but since 1991, I have served in St. Louis at the Senate headquarters there. That's, believe it or not, almost 30 years on the executive staff of the Synod's Commission on Theology and Church Relations. 
So how many of you know, have heard of the CTCR? Let's just start with that. Well, that's pretty good. Um, how many of you, harder question, have read at least one CTCR document? Awesome, okay. If you don't know much about the CTCR, we have tons of great theological reasons. This is a commission of the Synod. Uh, I'm full-time staff for that commission, but there's 20 appointed elected pastors, lay people, teachers, district presidents who come together four times a year and write documents on all kinds of theological subjects at the request of the Senate and to give guidance to folks. So that's been my job to oversee that for almost 30 years. And I think we have some great documents there, um, but I would think that probably, wouldn't I? Um, uh, many different subjects. The most recent document, major document that we've completed is on the topic of social media, believe it or not. And so that document is there on our website and might have some particular interest and relevance to your life. So if, if you haven't taken a look at that, please do. The biggest project in recent history that the CTCR has done and been in charge of, and I was privileged to chair the drafting committee for, for this book, is the new catechism, the 2017 edition of Luther's Catechism. We met about a million times, I think, over three years uh, uh, to, to work on that project, and I'm actually pretty pleased and proud with how it came out. And so if you don't have a copy, some of you like, I, you know, this is new to me too, because I was raised on a different catechism, you know, but uh, we did our best to try to update it by addressing some more contemporary problems and issues and questions. And if you don't have a copy of that or aren't familiar with it, I would really strongly encourage you to, to get a hold of it and to make use of it because it's a, it's a tremendous resource. And finally, last but not least, it's been my privilege five times now to serve as the theological advisor for the National Youth Gathering. And I won't go into all that that entails. It's a pretty cool job if you can get it, actually, because you get to be behind the scenes all the way through the planning process and get to be involved in making decisions about how the gathering comes out. Uh, just to retrace this a little bit, let's see. Uh, this comes out. I was wondering, some of you are kind of gathering junkies, uh, and so I thought I would just review the gatherings, at least I, in which I've been intimately involved. The first one was 1998 in Atlanta. Does anybody remember what the theme for that was, that gathering? Awesome. If there were a prize, you'd get it. That is awesome. Yeah. That was quite an awesome experience for me because at that gathering, even though it was my first gathering as theological advisor, I actually had the opportunity to, in the dome there in Atlanta, preach for the worship service there and, and didn't think I'd you know, make it, but it was pretty cool and scary and uh, quite a memorable experience. I then took some time off as I was finishing up my graduate work at the seminary, and so the next time I served as gathering was in 2016. 2007 in Orlando. Do you remember the, the theme for that gathering? Chosen. Chosen. Man, we do have a, he's a plant. I asked him to come here. No, I didn't. Yeah, pretty, pretty cool event too. After that, the next one after that was San Antonio in 2013. How about that gathering? Live Love. Now we're starting to get some more recent memories. And then three years ago in New Orleans, and by the way, obviously keep the city and area of New Orleans in your prayers, right? As they are really getting hit again. And some of us had the Katrina experience there and it brings back some painful memories. Um, um, so let's all keep them in our thoughts and prayers. But three years ago, the theme was what? In Christ alone. And here we are now in Minneapolis. Does anybody have any idea what this theme is? Ah, do you know? Real present God, awesome. Yeah, that is wonderful. Now, one of the things that the theological advisor is deeply involved is in choosing the scriptural foundation for these various themes. And here I'm going to even get my planted friend here probably because uh, some of the more recent ones you might remember, but I would be very surprised if anybody remembers the scriptural foundation for the Atlanta gathering called to be. Any remembrance of that? Yeah, it's tough. And we were doing things a little bit differently back then, but the, 
but Romans 1.6, it was. And it was just one, one verse. Of course, we brought in a lot of other scripture, but just one verse. And then we switched to the trend kind of, of trying to choose a fairly small book of the Bible as the gathering theme and trying to work through that at the gathering. So does anybody remember in 2011, chosen, what little book of the Bible we used for that? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. First Peter. First Peter was a little book there, and so we unpacked that. In San Antonio, Live Loved, what's the little book talks a lot about love? God is love. First John, yeah, was the little book there. And then in New Orleans, in Christ Alone, was a lot about Philippians, yeah, good. And now we have this little book of the Bible, the Psalms. And we have a problem, Minneapolis, you know. Because at every gathering, I would lead a session like this, sometimes two or three sessions, giving a behind-the-scenes digging into one of these little books of the Bible. But what do you do with the Psalms? (laughs) How are you supposed to, and now they only give me one session. I'm repeating it over the next two days, but it's the same session. It's not building on each other. So what do you do with the Psalms? Um, Well, here this now brings me to kind of after a lot of rambling what I've decided to do here. One of the things as we started to hear already last night in the mass events, as you've probably heard already in the morning sessions, is you're going to hear a lot more. One of the things that all of us, I think, love about the Psalms is is their honesty and transparency. How they are not afraid, how the psalmists are not afraid to ask questions, right? Sometimes very hard questions. Sometimes not even afraid to ask questions of God, which can be kind of a a bold and even risky thing to do. And so I just went through, you know, as I was preparing for this last week, went through and plucked out just kind of randomly some of the various questions that I saw surfacing in the Psalms. And we're we're not going to spend a lot of time um, talking about any of them, but just to, to illustrate. And some of these, I think, even showed up in the mass events last night. So just, just in case you're starting to fall asleep here, why don't, you, why don't you help me by reading some of these. Read this psalm. Psalm 10.1. What does it say? And a very similar verse from Psalm 13, verse 1. Read that. Now, just think about it. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time diving into it theologically, although we could. Just think about it. Isn't it a bit odd? Doesn't it seem to you a bit ironic, maybe even paradoxical, that we have a theme that is this year real, present God, and so many of the Psalms are about God being not present or seeming not present, about God hiding from us. Well, that's, that's a little odd, isn't it? And it's something we really need to grapple with a little bit. The psalmist say, where are you, God? Well, I'm right here. Well, I, where? You know, I, don't, I can't find you anywhere. And I would be very surprised if everyone sitting here this morning hadn't had some experience or multiple experiences in their lives where you wondered that too. Where are you, God? I need you now. You said you were going to be there for me. I need your help. Where are you? It's a theme that's all over the place in the Psalms. Another verse, Psalm 10, verse 13. Read this one. I think it's a pretty common sort of Christian question, isn't it? You know, it's one thing when I'm going through a tough time, and where are you, God, you know, in my life, but how can you look around, Lord, at all the horrible stuff, you know, going on around the world and, and not do anything about it? Why don't you just punish those bad people? <laughs> that would stop them, you know? And, and, and most of the time, it seems like he doesn't do that. That produces another kind of mysterious why question. Another verse here from Psalm 11.3. Why don't you read that? Lord, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
so even back then, David and the other psalmists were asking questions like this. Now, when I think of this verse, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the right, righteous do? I think of very foundational truths and values in our culture today that seem to be, if not destroyed, pretty badly damaged. Foundations like what? Marriage, Marriage the family, the understanding of the family, even just something as basic as absolute truth, you know, right or wrong. Is there any way of even knowing that? If, the, if those kind of foundations are destroyed, the understanding where the world came from, you know, creation, evolution. I mean, don't, haven't you had this experience where you've actually tried to talk to somebody about your Christian faith that questions it or denies it, and it's hard even to have a conversation about it because you're sort of talking two different languages? You know, they, they don't even accept the idea that there's a, a right or wrong. Or, well, I don't care about the Bible. The Bible, you know, what does that have to do with anything? And, and it is a very difficult quandary. But it's somewhat comforting to know that, you know, the psalmist faced that same quandary. Another question here. Why don't you read that? Well, this is a little more personal. It's easy to find fault in others and find all kinds of problems out in the world. But there may be times in your own life because of sin or guilt that you wonder... Do I even have the right to come before God and, and ask him for his help? Because I'm very aware of the sins and shortcomings in my life. Similar kind of verse from Psalm 119. Read that, please. Yeah, young man, of course, young woman. A question that maybe, you know, in a very personal way you, all of us, have probably struggled with. How in this culture today that I'm living, how can I have these friends and hang out, you know, and really be in the world with these people? You can't leave the world, but how can I do all that and still maintain my purity and righteousness and faithfulness before God? And here's a case where, as is more often than the case than you would think, that the Psalms give an answer. It's not the easiest answer in the world, um, but it's it's... An answer, and it says, how can you do that? Read. So that goes back to that pure word. How can a young person, any person, keep themselves pure? Psalm 12 that we started with talked about the pure word of God that also has the power to keep us pure. Next question I plucked out of the Psalms from Psalm 94. Read that, please. Yeah, this goes beyond just bad things happening in the world, but people who are not Christians kind of mocking us about it, right? You know, where's your God? How's that working out for you? You know, that stuff that, that, that you believe. And then similar, again, from Psalm 115, if you want to read that. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And so we have... The nations mocking Israel, and in this case, Israel as the church. You know, where is this God that you claim to be so real and so present and so powerful? And that might lead to this kind of an attitude, which is pretty prevalent in the Psalms. You want to read that? And there are commentators on the Psalms that say that by our modern day sort of psychological standards, it seems possible, if not likely, that King David himself experienced severe bouts of not just sadness, but depression. And, and while that may seem a bit shocking for someone who is pictured in the Bible as probably the primary type, Old Testament type of Jesus Christ, what was Jesus called? The son of David. For him to have gone through those kinds of experiences is again, in some ways, kind of comforting, isn't it? Because no one kind of knew, few people at least, knew God as intimately as David, and yet he was deeply cast down at times himself for various reasons, because of his own sin and maybe God's apparent absence in his life. But then a few questions that take a little bit more of an upturn. Read this, please. Why 
Okay, when the psalmists start to reflect on the promises of God, then they start to get their minds right a little bit and say, why should I be afraid of people who put so much stock in things that seem like they're so strong and powerful, their money, their wealth, their power, their fame, but are really, as we all know, quite fleeting as well. And then Psalm 139, read that please. Again, what we're doing here is just illustrating, giving a sampling of some of the profound questions in the Psalms. I always think of this as kind of a good news, bad news thing, right? I mean, it's kind of great to know that wherever you are, God is there. And sometimes it's not so great to know that wherever you are and what you're doing, God is there and sees it all. You know, sometimes you'd rather you could hide from him. We know some people try to do that, right? And it didn't work out all that well. Lots of great creation themes in the Psalms. This is one of them. Please read. And similar. Another thing that I love about the Psalms is that really they're very humbling, especially when they talk about God as creator of the world. And when you think, it, I mean, really think about that, that he created. You, I sometimes just sit on my porch in my front yard and look up at a tree or something. I think, wow, God made that tree. Well, he didn't just make that tree. He made every tree and every bird and every cloud and every star. And here I am sometimes saying, God, what are you doing? You know what you're doing? Well, careful, Joel. You know, and the psalmist said, what, what, well, who am I that you should care for me? You know, we do live in a society that I think we tend to think, of course God cares about us. You know, look at how special and important I am, you know. Well, yeah, God loves you, and in that sense, you're very special and important to him, but it's not like we have the right to tell God how he should be feeling and thinking and doing. He, he kind of knows his job, you know, and can do it better than we can. And so this is a more appropriate question, right? And maybe we should ask that question more often, you know, think about all the blessings God has poured into our lives and and what can I do to render to the Lord some measure of gratitude for his gifts to me? And then this, I think, was mentioned at a key point in the Mass events last night. This goes back to a sort of, in a way, negative note, but let's read it. And as was mentioned, I think, this is a psalm of David that was spoken thousands of years ago, but it was quoted in the New Testament by whom? By Jesus on the cross, making that connection again between David and Christ. And it is of supreme comfort that even Jesus himself, right, asked a question like why. Not that at that moment he didn't know the answer to the question, but overwhelmed by the reality of being forsaken by God, his Father on the cross, which is something we can't even comprehend. How can God forsake God? Um, this just cry of dereliction came out of his chest and heart. And uh, so we can never say Jesus doesn't understand, right? Jesus understands better than any of us what it means to go through suffering and forsakenness. He went through it to a far greater extent than any of us ever will. And which means we can always go to him and not just talk to somebody that, you know, you don't really know I'm talking about, but he, he knows. He gets it. Believe me. Um, and what a comfort that is. A couple more. Um, this is from Martin Luther's favorite psalm, Psalm 118. It's read on Easter Day. It's kind of the resurrection psalm. Read just this verse here. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can 
So even Jesus sort of was able to say that too, right? On the cross, he cried out in distress to the Lord, and the Lord answered by setting him free from death as well, uh, raising him from the dead. And so this is one reason this was such a precious psalm to Luther. And it's one thing that I really have come to appreciate much more deeply about the psalms um, is to read them through the eyes and heart of Christ, to see how Christ is central in all of the psalms. That takes a little work and effort sometimes because sometimes it's kind of hard to see. Well, how is Christ speaking? How is he living there? But just as something to think about, and there are some great, great resources, books. Um, Even someone like a, a popular author like Tim Keller has a recent book on Christ in the Psalms that is very helpful in in reminding us how in this or that Psalm, Christ is at the center of it. And so I think this might be the last one here. Read this one. The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? At almost every gathering that I've served as theological advisor, I've not only led a session digging more deeply into the scriptural foundation, but at almost all of them I've also led several sessions that just allow people to gather in a room like this and ask any question they want of the theological advisor. And partly because of the schedule issues that I talked about before, I, I decided not to do that this time, so there's no session like that. But as I was looking at the Psalms and thinking about how shot full they are of what? Questions. I thought, what more appropriate way to honor the tenor of the Psalms than by giving you an opportunity to do that again here today. And so that's what I've decided to do basically with the time that remains. And that's why I said at the beginning what happens now is a little bit up to you. Um, Martin Luther once said, in fact, if you have a Lutheran study Bible at home, and maybe you brought one with you, I didn't bring mine because it's so big and I didn't want to carry that big thing while I went to the plane. But in, in that book, in that Bible, at the beginning of the section on the Psalms, it, it has almost all of Luther's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful preface to the Psalms. I mean, it's, it's, it's really worth reading, his little preface. But one of the things he says in that little preface is that the Psalms themselves might be called a little Bible. So almost any problem or issue or doctrine or teaching that you can find anywhere in the Bible is somewhere in the Psalms. He says, Luther says, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit kind of anticipated that people might be a little too lazy or something to, to you know, read the Bible as thoroughly as they should. So he compressed all of the teaching of Scripture into a, the Psalms, which people might be more likely to read because they're poetic and they're hymns and they're prayers, and in some ways they're a little easier to read, but the whole Bible is there. And that's quite a powerful insight, I think, of Luther. So as you think about any questions that you might want to raise in this session here, think about it in the context of that, that maybe you have a question about the Psalms, as you've been reading the Psalms in preparation for the gathering, or as you've heard something already here at the, at the gathering in the mass events or another session that has pro- provoked your interest. Maybe you have a question that you've been talking about and debating with your friends or talking with your pastor or youth group leader about for a long time, and maybe you even feel like, well, I kind of am pretty satisfied with that answer, but, you know, we got a guy standing up here willing to take my questions, and we'll see what he has to say about it, you know. Um, maybe you have a question that you've been kind of hiding away in your heart a little bit, and you've been a little bit hesitant to, to ask or raise, and I want this to be a safe space for you to raise it if, if you'd like. Um, maybe there, there's something um, in your own personal study of the scriptures that's just always kind of, nag- or a specific Bible verse, just like you always stumble over it. 
say, what does that mean? Now, a couple of caveats. I, I, I am not the ultimate Bible answer man. I'm not claiming that at all. I'm not claiming that just because you have a great question, I'm going to have the greatest answer to it or any answer at all. I think the mass events handled this pretty well last night when they said that First of all, the Bible simply does not. It does not, it doesn't claim to, and it does not have all the answers to every question that we have. And in some ways, it doesn't answer so that kind of even the biggest questions that we have, those why questions, right? And I really like what Jake said at the end of the mass events, that even if it kind of did, even if God did say, well, okay, usually I don't tell people the answer to those why questions, but I'm going to tell you that here's why I'm allowing this person you love to suffer, or here's why I let your dad die or your brother die. If, even if God did that, I very much doubt we would find that answer very satisfying. We'd probably say, well, wait a minute, God. You know, if that was what you're trying to do, couldn't you have done it this way or that way? So we, we just keep probably challenging him. And so those why questions, you know, um, I'm not going to have an answer to those because the Bible doesn't have an answer to those. But, um, you know, if you have a question you want to raise here based on your reading of the Psalms or Scripture or discussions that you'd have, I'd be more than happy to do my best to answer. That's part of the reason I shared my background here, because I have for 30 years worked in an office where we deal with questions. And by the way, you can write the International Center, it's an info center. I'll give the address later. There is a place you can go and submit any question you have to the Synod in St. Louis. And if it's a theological question, it's going to come up to our office, and we're going to write you back. And we're going to try to give you an answer to that question. So that's, that's part of the job that I do every day. And so I just thought, since at the mass events, you're hearing a lot of people talk about questions and probably at Bible studies too, but there hasn't really been a forum probably, except in your small groups, to, to kind of actually raise questions, this might be an opportunity to do that. And just to prime the pump just a little bit more, um, let's see here. One of my favorite little books on the Psalms, some of you may be familiar with it, is a little book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer called The Psalms, The Prayer Book of the Bible. Look how little this book is, folks. Yeah. It's a lot shorter even than the Psalms. I love little books, you know. <laughs> um, and so I would highly recommend this. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer does, I'll just click through these all, he divides all of the Psalms, all 150 Psalms, into these 10 categories and says that they all deal with one or more of these subjects, creation, the law, holy history, the Messiah, the church, life, suffering, guilt, enemies, or the end. That's quite a list, isn't it? It's quite an all-encompassing list of topics that are covered by the Psalms. And I thought looking at some of those topics might even just spur your kind of interest in, oh yeah, you know, I kind of did have a question about that. Now, I know you didn't know coming this session that this is what we're going to do, and I've used up quite a bit of time already, right? So, I mean, it's not been a, yeah, almost an hour already. But we do have a little more time, and if, if I open it up here and you just stare back at me or, you know, your head nods and nobody has any questions, um, that's fine. I, I'll probably just let you go, and you'll have, you will be able to get a little bit of a nap in. But I want to give you the opportunity to ask if you would like to do that. I have a microphone here, but with this group, I, I don't even know if we really need it. So, um, yeah, why don't you wander up and just sit up here. And if it turns out that people have questions and we can't hear, we can use that mic. But anybody have anything on their hearts or minds? Or just, I didn't have to be on your hearts or minds. Just a, a question that you, and I know there's a little bit of a risk even in a group like this asking something out loud. Uh, first of all, imprecatory. That might be a big new word to some of you. The imprecatory psalms are psalms that call down God's judgment uh, upon in a pretty severe way. In fact, the psalm that we started with, Psalm 12 this morning, if you recall, kind of was like that. You know, God strike down the wicked. You know, uh, what do we do with that? And some of them are quite graphic, you know. 
Um, of course, when you read the Old Testament, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been reading through the Old Testament as a whole again, and even though I've read the Bible many, many times, even I, I think probably I'm starting to be influenced more by culture itself, but even I'm kind of shocked at some of the stuff, the imprecatory stuff, not just words, but actions of God in the Old Testament, where not does he just talk about striking down the enemies or calling out, he does it, you know? And so you can't get away from it, even if it wasn't in the Psalms, you know, it's there. And the Psalms are, help us in a way to work through that. The way that I prefer to read the imprecatory Psalms that helps me through them is, first of all, to identify the ultimate enemy or wicked person or evil one. And that is who? Satan. You know, there is a being called Satan. He is pure evil. There is Nothing uh, that we should hope and wish for other than that he be put in his place and judged and destroyed. So he is, he is the enemy, right? And there is no way now that we have a world that has sin in it and you have forces lined up for and against God. And it, Satan isn't by himself either, right? You've got a whole army of evil angels according to the Bible that are working constantly against us. And so if you just stop there and you pick out any imprecatory psalm and you say, God smite down the enemy, I, I don't have any problem at all praying that against the devil and his evil angels. Right? So start there. Now, where it gets a little more probably difficult is that Satan and his evil angels recruit people. Right? On, the, on their side against God and his people. And there may come a point where, uh, you know, because you don't see the devil, you know, you don't see the evil angels, but he's using people. And so, you know, behind all of those evil works is, is real flesh and blood. And even though we don't battle against flesh and blood, you know, ultimately we, we do in real life. And so, to some degree or another, you have to face the fact that you, whose side are you on? You know, God's side or the devil's side? And whether you're praying or not, of course, our, our ultimate hope for anyone, any, any real human being, is that they would come to their senses and repent and believe. But right at this moment, if you are lined up against God and there's a battle going on, you don't have, it's like a war, right? If you're in a battle... And the enemy is shooting at you and going to kill you and kill your family and kill people you love. There's really only one thing you can do in a battle. And that's shoot back, you know, and pray that God helps your aim. Right? Um, now, later on after the battle, a person's still alive and we can have peace, great. But it's a war. We're fighting a spiritual war. And it's pretty evident today. Now, hopefully that, what I've said so far, doesn't apply just one-on-one -on -one to to. Christians who really are believers, but, you know, um, we also know that Christians are sinners and when they are engaged in sinful behavior that they're not willing to repent of, they are opening themselves up to God's judgment as well, you know, forgive us our trespasses, Lord, as we forgive each other. And if you're not willing to do that, you're in, you're in some spiritual danger. And so the imprecatory Psalms could be, I think, a reminder of how severe God's judgment is against those who sin without repentance and are unwilling to reconcile. You know, don't go to the altar until you reconcile with your brother. If you can't do that, that's pretty serious. You know, so I don't know if that helps, but that's what comes to mind as I stand here today. The question was, if you didn't hear it, when when Jesus on the cross said, "Why have you forsaken me?" Was he just quoting that one line, or did he have the whole psalm in mind, or in the context of the psalm? You know, it's obviously I don't, I don't, we don't know what exactly was in Jesus' mind. But one of the things I've really learned through this sort of more Christ-centered approach to the Psalms that has been opened up to me by people like Luther and Bonhoeffer, and I would mention another author that he's he's. An, He's an orth, East, Eastern Orthodox author, but really profound stuff. Is a guy named Patrick Henry Reardon. 
I don't know if that name means anything to any of you, but he wrote a book called Christ in the Psalms. And he has, the book has every psalm in it, and it goes through and helps you to see how Christ is, is at the center of that psalm. Now, we do know that just as we use the psalms today as a hymn book and prayer book for the whole church, so did the people in the time of Jesus. And we know for sure that Jesus and the disciples prayed the psalms and sang the psalms. You know, we know that from the New Testament. I believe you can take every psalm and put it, the whole psalm, and put it in the mouth of Jesus as if he is speaking it. Not only do I believe you can do that, I believe in a sense you need to do that if you really want to understand the Psalms properly. Now, it isn't always easy, but let me give you this example. And this, I'm deterring a little bit, but do you, think about how many Psalms you use and you read in church. You probably don't even think about it, but say, Lord, I have never strayed from your path. You know, I have been perfectly righteous and faithful. There's a lot of Psalms that say that. And sometimes when I'm reading them, I think, wait a minute, <laughs> that's a lie. I shouldn't be saying that. I haven't been perfectly righteous, perfectly faithful. A lot of Psalms do that. Who's the only one that can say that? Can you say that? Yes, in, insofar as you are in Christ, right? In Christ, as a perfectly forgiven, justified sinner, I have done nothing wrong, Right? God looks at me and says, Joel, I don't see any problem. I'm like, well, look a little closer, you know. <laughs> but he's looking at me in Christ. And so that's the way I can read those Psalms. I don't have to like think, hey, gee, maybe David could say it. We know David couldn't even say it, right? David all like, David, what are you talking about? But David was saying it in Christ, you know. I, I certainly believe you can do the same thing with, with Psalm 22. You can read the whole psalm as coming right out of the heart and mind of Christ. You have to kind of make some moves of interpretation here and there. But, but the author of the psalms is who? The, David and a lot of other, about a dozen other people, maybe. Uh, we know the names of some of them, some of them we don't. Are the human authors of the psalms. Who is the divine author of the psalms? God those are coming out of God's mouth, right? Before any man's mouth. Who is God? Jesus. So to say that Jesus can speak the psalms, Jesus did speak the psalms, right? He and the Father and the Holy Spirit wrote them, you know, used the mouths of people, but they wrote them. So those are, before they're anything else, they're the words of Jesus. And, and again, that doesn't mean that there aren't some challenges of interpretation when you, when you do that. But yes, I believe that entire psalm was in his heart and mind. But it's an interesting thought that, I, that you raised I never thought of. Maybe, just like we have certain phrases in the Bible and certain phrases in the psalms that have become like little sayings to us, just to comfort us and to stay close to us, it's, it's quite possible that in, in those times they did the same thing. And maybe that was... That phrase, you know, that was most on Jesus' heart and mind at that moment, that is very possible. Thank you for putting that in my mind. Yeah, I'll use that again. Why does God use suffering? Yeah, um, I, I always like to start with suffering questions with the fact that ultimately the reason there is suffering in the world is did God at the very beginning, did God create there to be suffering when he created the world? No, he created things to be perfect. You know, everything is very good, he said. He didn't really uh, mean for Adam and Eve or their children to suffer. And when we see the heavens and the earth recreated to be even in better shape than they were at the beginning in the Garden of Eden which is where? Where will we be when we experience that? At a national youth gathering? Well, no. Yeah. Um, heaven, right? Will there be suffering in heaven? No suffering in heaven. So God didn't intend it. God didn't create it. Why is there suffering? In some ways, there's a little bit of mystery involved. Why did God even allow that stuff to happen, right? You know, that's where we get to the why question. But 
The reason there is suffering in the world is because of the devil and his rebellion against God, because of his tempting Adam and Eve to sin, and they're falling into sin, and that has led to all the suffering in the world that exists today. Every form of suffering that you can identify stems from that. The amazing thing is that God is so great and so powerful that he can take every single thing, even bad things, and use them for our good. And there are all kinds of passages in the New Testament. You look at the book of Romans, for example, as a great example of that, about the good things that he brings out of suffering. And I'll just open up to the group. What are some of the, the good things that the Bible itself says can come out of suffering? What does it, what does it do? Purifies our faith. Uh, makes us realize what our priorities really are. Might, we might think, oh, this thing is really, really important. And then we go through some, some really painful suffering. And you know what? I don't really care that much about my stupid car anymore. You know, my, kid, my child is in trouble. Why do I care about my car? You know, or my bank account. Uh, so, yeah, it purifies our faith and our priorities. It, it, get, it strengthens certain qualities in us, Paul says, like patience. It, it makes us realize that just because I want something to happen, it's not going to happen right now. It teaches me to wait. You know. uh, suffering also drives us to God. Because like in the Psalms, like where, where, you know, where do I go when I need help? If we didn't suffer as sinful people, it would be bad, <laughs> probably, wouldn't it? Because I, you know, I don't like to admit it, but I can, if things are going pretty well in my life, I can get pretty spiritually lazy and cocky and just kind of think, oh, you're obviously doing pretty good, you know. Or I don't really need to read my Bible today, or I don't need to pray. Um, that happens to all of us. And so suffering kind of brings us back down to our knees and makes us look up to the heavens and, and trust it, which is what we need to be doing all the time. Um, so maybe that helps answer that question a little bit, although... Again, I right now in my life and you right now in your life have all kinds of things probably that we're suffering and praying for and kind of wonder, Lord, don't you think it's about time? Maybe, I mean, I have been waiting a long time for my version of the answer to that prayer, but God is God and I'm not, you know. And one of the marvelous things, I don't know how it's all going to work out in heaven, you know, we can easily talk like, well, this is that, and it's going to happen. Well, I don't know exactly what's going to happen in heaven. But I, it will be fascinating if when we get to heaven, we are able to kind of see, you know, uh, okay, I, <laughs> I kind of get it. It's like a little kid, you know, with parents, you know. Do you expect that two-year-old kid to know why you're saying no? You know, it didn't make any sense. But later on when they become mature and see things, from through your eyes, father's eyes, mother's eyes. Okay, you didn't want me to kill myself. I get it now. You know that's why I wasn't supposed to stick my hand in that hole. You know, um, so yeah. I put one more psalm on the board here because I thought it kind of fit with our topic today. Not only that, I told you about my current Bible reading plan. One month ago today, actually, was my birthday, my 21st birthday, <clears throat> and the psalm appointed for that day was this psalm, and I was just really appreciative of reading this psalm on my birthday. It seemed to fit kind of what I was experiencing at that time in my life, and I think it sort of fits with what we're talking about today, even though we might have all these kinds of questions. Uh, let's just read this psalm together, if you will. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I don't know about you, but 
I need that message once in a while too. I don't have to know all the answers to all the questions. I don't have to, maybe this is especially pertinent in my position, right? Because sometimes people do expect, oh, you're the you're theology guy, you're supposed to know all the answers. I, the, the, the older I get, the less answers I have, frankly, you know, to most, most questions. I mean, the, the more sure I am of the answers I do have, but the more cocky or confident I am that I've got all the answers. And this psalm was very meaningful to me in that regard. One thing I did wonder about, frankly, as I read this psalm, it would have seemed to me like the psalmist should have said that, that when we're calm and quieted before the Lord like this, we're like a nursing child. Because, you know, when a child is nursing, it's obviously, you know, it's perfectly content. A weaned child, you know, why? Why weaned? But I think, I've really thought a lot about it, actually. And I think it's that even though a nursing child is content when it's nursing, <laughs> when it's not nursing, it lets you know when it needs to nurse, right? And it does that by wah-wang, you know? And a wean child has gotten to the next stage, right? And it isn't necessarily, because it's hungry at least, crying all the time. It, it, it's moving on to more solid food in life. And so that's the way I've kind of settled that little dilemma in my own mind that a wean child has, has grown now, you know, and it knows it'll be fed when the, when the time has come, and it can be content knowing that mom and dad are going to take care of me, and that's the way I need to feel about my Heavenly Father every day, at times especially when I have so many questions that don't have answers.